In letters from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. called out Southern ministers who refused to take a stand for the civil rights movement. He thought that the white church would prove powerful allies to the black person's push for social justice and equality, but in many cases, he was sadly disappointed. He wrote, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth sanctimonious trivialities. He went on to warn these churches and uninvolved in dealing with the racial injustices and inequalities that if they did not recapture the spirit of the early church, they would lose their authentic ring, forfeit their loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club. Martin Luther King Jr. echoes the outcry of the prophet Amos against God's people. Amos warns the children of God about getting caught up in meaningless religious devotion apart from the Lord's prescribed purpose. Prophet thus preaches to a misguided, complacent church. So as we continue in our trek through scripture and its redemptive lessons, we arrive today in Amos chapter five, verses 18 to 25. Amos chapter five, beginning at verse 18, this is God's word to his people. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is not very dark with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years of Israel? Martin Luther King Jr. did not begin with thoughts of being a key leader in the civil rights movement of the South. He was simply an academic who had settled into the role of pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. But God ultimately thrust him into civil rights leadership when a woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. Amos did not begin with thoughts of being a prophet either. He was simply a sheep herdsman with no ministerial background. But God gave to Amos a vision and it was a vision in which he was supposed to confront Israel's sin and warn them of impending judgment. 
The prophet says in chapter 3, verse 8, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Francis Chan said that when he speaks at a conference, there's typically a countdown clock letting him know exactly how much time he has left to speak. He explains, sometimes I pretend that that clock is a countdown of my life. I imagine that I'll be standing face to face with God when that timer expires. And that gives me the courage to say everything I think the Lord would want me to say. If I really was going to die when that timer expired, I would care very little about people's complaints. Instead, I would be obsessed with seeing the face of God. I would be obsessed with only wanting His approval. Chan's perspective matches closely with that of the heart of Amos. The prophet spoke courageously to a generation that did not believe that they would ever be subject to God's wrath. His goal was to set into the minds of Israel a simple question. Could things be different? Might they be different than we've actually thought? Three times he mentions the day of the Lord. It is a reference to when Yahweh would return in judgment to punish sin and set all things right. The people longed for it. They believed that it would bring judgment on their enemies, blessings on Israel, and vindication on themselves as individuals. Yet Amos says it would mean anything but that. The day of the Lord would be darkness, not light. Dare I say the time period of Amos was not unlike ours today. And keep in mind that Amos' message would have been directed to people sitting in church pews. Could things be different than we've actually thought? The message translates God's word, the church, through his prophet like this. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your pretentious slogans or goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can do of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That translation of the biblical text suggests to me that our churches might need to reconsider the Lord's prescribed purpose for our worship. In verses 21 to 23, God says he hates, he despises, he takes no delight in their worship. He says he will not accept it, he will not look upon it, he will not listen to it. What has led to the Lord's stern displeasure? Israel did not lack for religious fervor. 
They continued to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover. The Feast of Weeks, what would become Pentecost. The Feast of Tabernacles. They continued to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings. But these offerings and festivals were all pointless if they never moved beyond the sanctuary. They were pointless if they did not come back into our homes and out into our communities. The fortune is this, was offerings all you brought to me and nothing more. Or to ask it differently, what does our faith look like outside these church walls? The question Amos poses in verse 25 is a rhetorical one. The absence of sacrifices and offerings during Israel's 40-year wilderness wanderings would have had no significant impact on the people's relationship with the Lord. Israel's relationship with Yahweh was not contingent upon elaborate systems. It was uniquely contingent upon their hearts, loving God and loving one another. And the Mosaic ideal religious celebrations were all tied to holiness. Strip them of that context and they were merely religious pretense. Strip them from holiness and they were merely sanctimonious trivialities. For those who have been coming to Sunday night Bible study, you know that um, Francis Chan's book, Letters to the Church, has especially um, spoken to me of late. In that book, Chan talks about how he guides church leaders through a simple exercise. First, all the things that people expect from their church. In this part of that exercise, preaching, beautiful music, age-specific ministries, a children's zone, coffee, and so on. But then he asked the leaders to list the commands that God gave the church in Scripture. At this point, they identify loving one another as Christ loved us. They identify visiting orphans and widows in their distress. They identify making disciples of all nations. They identify bearing one another's burdens. Then, Chan finally asked them, which would cause people to leave their fellowship faster? If the church didn't provide the first things, or if they stopped doing the second things? It's a good question to ask. Why do people in America come to church? What do they want from a church? And when are they quick to leave a church? Chan goes on to say, let's not forget there are heartbreaking things happening throughout our world. Families are desperately seeking clean water for survival. People are starving. Kids are enslaved and being raped. These are tragedies that the church can significantly reduce if we were willing to worship more simply. That's convicting. 
What are we doing? And why are we doing it? Imagine with me if the church, if the church was stripped back down to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I mean, let's go to God's Word. What would the church look like? Scripture simply says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. There wasn't a youth ministry. There wasn't a singles ministry. There weren't Easter egg hunts. There there wasn't cantatas and huge musical programs. The people gathered together to learn from God's word, to fellowship with one another, to have communion together, to pray for God's spirit to move and to change people's hearts. It wasn't about entertainment at all. I'm not saying there's anything inappropriate about church programs. I'm not. I'm not saying that because Amos wasn't saying there was anything wrong with observing the festivals and the offerings that Israel had. But what I am saying, as clearly as I can, if we truly believe that God's church is about programming, we are gravely mistaken. The Lord declares through Amos that he will not, he will not accept our worship apart from justice running down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Or I might say it like this. The Lord's prescribed purpose is that we be for one another. Someone shared a picture of heaven and hell that was exactly the same. Seems kind of odd, right? In heaven and hell, there was a big pot of delicious soup or stew that even my children would eat. And before each person sitting in a circle around this big pot of stew were these really long ladles. And in heaven, you looked at the picture and everybody had eaten to their full, their delight, and they were laughing and enjoying themselves, and they were at peace. But in hell, they were still hungry, and they were angry, and they were desiring of something that they did not have. And the picture was this. That in heaven, they were taking their long ladles that they could not lift to themselves to ever eat. And they were extending it across the way to the person across from them. But in hell, they kept trying to lift it up to themselves. The image is simply this. God's people are for one another. Those who are not God's people are only for themselves. 
The New Testament uses the phrase one another over 100 times to love one another. 1 John 4, 10, 11 reads, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. To care for one another. Ephesians 4.32 reads, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave you. To pray for one another. James 5.16 reads, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Go on and on. Most definitely, God wants for us to be for one another. If we're not doing that, we're just playing church instead of being the church. God desires justice and righteousness, not a litany of religious activity. Justice means securing what is right for others. It is concerning ourselves with systemic problems in society. And there are systemic problems in society. Righteousness means doing right by others, especially the marginalized and the vulnerable. It is concerning ourselves with the needs of those around us. If you think I'm just saying this because I have some soapbox that I want to stand on. How about we listen to the words of Jesus? Isn't the church about Christ? So perhaps we should hear what he has to say in Matthew chapter 25 when he's talking about a parable of his return. It is in essence a prelude to the real day of the Lord. At that time, the king will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take. Overwhelming, is it not? We cannot do everything. I mean, as much as I would love to somehow, some way, be able to deliver the Ukraine, I can't do that. I can pray for them. The world is broken and it's overwhelming. We cannot do everything. But church, we can do something. Maybe it means getting involved with a food pantry or a soup kitchen. Maybe it means assisting with a pregnancy center or praying for the unborn in front of Planned Parenthood. We're going to do that again in March. Maybe it means ringing a bell for an organization like the Salvation Army or answering a bell when natural disaster strikes a neighboring community. Maybe it means tutoring a less privileged child 
are volunteering for something like Kids for Christ. Maybe it means preparing care packages for military or providing meals for a family after a major surgery. Maybe it means taking time to visit widows or finding some practical way to provide for orphans. You get the gist. The Holy Spirit is calling us to do something. He will not tolerate a social club simply taking upon itself the name of a church. We are not a social club. We're a body of believers called to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. The prophet Amos helps to set out for us the complete gospel. The complete gospel. To begin with, the day of God's judgment is unavoidable. He talks about a man who may have escaped a lion and then maybe even escaped the bear, but then was struck in his home by a serpent. Judgment is inevitable. And if, like Amos says, and like the full counsel of God's word says, judgment is inevitable then might I suggest we go to the place where God's judgment has already been poured out, that we would flee to Calvary, to escape the lion, the bear, and the serpent, you've got to look to the lamb. Look to Christ crucified. But I would be remiss if I stopped there. Sometimes perhaps I do. Yes, look to Jesus Christ for salvation, but if you choose Christ, know what you're choosing to follow. You are choosing to follow him. And that means you're choosing to be crucified in him. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I don't just look to him. I follow him. I imitate him. And Jesus Christ says in John 15.12, love one another as I have loved you. If somehow, if somehow we miss that, if we're missing that, then I might suggest that our worship is just consumeristic noise. It's just going through the motions. It's playing church, but it's not being church. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And all of the other things, they just are not as important.
love God and love people. And we'll be the church. I'd ask you to pray with me. Lord, for all the days and years of my life where I have played church, I repent. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed restore unto me the joy of my salvation and all that it means, all that it entails. And that I would return to the heart of worship that you have outlined in your word. I pray that for our church, that we truly would be, as we sit up on this hill, a city on a hill, a light that shines that nothing or no one can put out. And that we would love one another as you have loved us. Christ, make it so, I pray in your name. Amen. That is our hymn of response um, today, hymn 127. And if you need to make a decision today, if you just need to pray, the altar is open. Let's stand as we sing.